This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Uh, We're in a series uh, called Satisfied about how Christianity is both true and pleasing. That it has, uh, that it's truth, it has the best uh, answers, reasons for your mind. But really, when you look inside your heart, it gives the most satisfying, pleasing answers. And it's important to know this because so often we think about Christianity as, this, uh, as these list of duties. But to think of Christianity as a list of good, as something as you do it, as, as Scripture reveals itself for what it is, as you pursue it, that you are satisfied. It's a story of good and evil. It's the age-old story, isn't it? Of good and pursuing good and evil and all that is against it. And everything that is good, we agree with. Whether we grew up in Korea, whether we grew up in the U.S., when we read a story, there's a sense that even uh, apart from culture, beyond culture, we can understand, oh, this is good. And there's other parts that we, where we can all agree, oh, this is not good. The good is everything that we think it ought should be, how it should be. And those that, those that is, the parts of it that are evil is everything that it shouldn't be, how it should not be so. And so, stories like Tortoise and the Hare, right, about a turtle and the rabbit, right? The story is well known in the U.S., the story is well known in Korea, the story is probably well known uh, from, from where you are. And wh- why is it? Is it because turtles are inherently good, and so we can resonate with that, and then, you know, rabbits are inherently bad? No, what's the story about? The story is about the turtle that's what? Humble, hardworking, right? Just every day is faithful. And what's the rabbit about? The rabbit's about the proud, the arrogant, Right? The self, what, those that, that, that think that they deserve it all. Right? And then, so in that, we start to see beyond culture, one is good and one is bad. And the sense of good and evil is all around us. It's in every story. It's in the greatest stories ever told. Right? The story I'm thinking about is Star Wars, not the Bible. Right? Star Wars is what the story of good and evil Isn't that interesting of how there is a force? May the force be with you. What's it saying? May the power of all that is good, all the things that unite us, be with you. And then what's the evil called? The dark side. Welcome to the dark side. Right? Even in a story of, of Hollywood, there's so much that is beyond culture. It's not just... America that loves Star Wars. It's so many, right? So many nations. Because the, 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 the old story that goes beyond our lifetime is a story of good and a story of evil. And what we want to see from here is how we long for that light even here today. But as one author mentions, uh, the light that we see is often the one that's on our face when we have a phone in our hands, 
when we're watching TV. That's the only light that we see. Philosophers have called the age that we live in uh, the disenchanted time, the disenchanted age, where there is no more longing for beauty because science has, has tried to rationalize it away. And so we live in a flattened, colorless world, an empty world where we try to find meaning, but we struggle with it. This is the world that we live in. It's a disenchanted world. We live from one experience to the next experience. We, we look for one purchase, and then we go to the next purchase. We live from one vacation to the other, and everything in between seems to be meaningless. This is why we are considered a hedonistic culture. We just pursue pleasure after pleasure after pleasure. And so although we would all agree that slavery is wrong, there's more slaves today than ever. Why? So much of it is fueled by sex trafficking. Because we're addicted to pleasures that we will purchase our pleasure even if it means someone else's enslavement. That's the world we live in. We live in a world where good and evil has lost its meaning, and therefore there is no right, there is no wrong, there is nothing sacred, there is nothing important. And so all we have to live by is these fleeting moments of pleasure. And we continue to pursue it. And so as we look into Scripture, what we see is where we are, you and I, we're created for so much more, aren't we? We're created for so much more. The story of the Bible is this. The story of the Bible is that we are created good, we long to live good lives, and we can't imagine anything else but the good ending, right? That ending where we feel that after this all ends, we want it to be, whether we're Christian or not, we want it to be more. Because one of the great realities of the atheistic faith is after this life, there is nothing. It comes to an end. All that you have worked for, all the people that you love, it comes to an end. And the sound of that, what does it do within us? We hope that that's not true because we want so much more because we're created to live good lives. And at the end of it all, we want that good ending. And the question is for Christianity, is that just a fairy tale? Is it just someone's imagination that this is how they want it to end, there, that there is a heaven and there is no more sin? Is it a fairy tale ending or is it the ending that we all deeply, deeply long for, that we want that good ending, we want that good life? I think it's been contributed to Blaise Pascal uh, with this idea that deep within the human heart is a memory of the memory of the good life, right? In your heart, deep inside your heart, Christian or not, there's a memory of a memory, something so faint, it's an echo of an echo, where you want the good life. You watch a movie, and it ends well, and it satisfies. Why does it satisfy? Because it's that echo of an echo that is satisfied. It's that desire of that desire that is satisfied. And so we're looking to the idea of goodness this week. Last week we looked into beauty and how everything that we long for that's beautiful is found in Christianity, simply, uh, specifically in Christ. And so today, all the longings of good, 
right? All the times that you watch a, a movie that has a bad ending, and you leave frustrated, like, oh, it does, it does, it's not even a feel-good movie. That, we're, we're, we're looking at that and looking at and wondering, this longing for goodness in our hearts, why do we have it? And where do we find satisfaction in it? So the longing for goodness. Tell your neighbor you long for goodness. You long for goodness. Do you believe it? Uh, Romans 7, verse 15, the words that Trishan read, that's like a riddle, right? It's like, what's it saying? For I do not understand my own actions, he writes. I do not do what I want, but the very thing that I hate, and then going into verse 18, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the very evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. The tongue twister in many ways are really a tongue twister for our hearts, right? Because so many of us, we're like this. So when, we look, when we look at our lives, we have done things and committed things that we wonder, why do we ever do it? We know it was wrong. We know it was stupid. But the heart simply what? Wanted what it wanted. And so we do it. You see, uh, this chapter that I read is potentially one of the most debated uh, passages in all of Scripture. Because one group of scholars, one group of com uh, commentators will say, this is describing chapter 7, uh, the struggle before someone meets Christ. But uh, the other group will say, no, 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 this is a struggle of a Christian. And so what is it? Is this chapter describing the testimony, the inner turmoil of someone who has not met Christ or someone who has met Christ. Uh, before I answer that, I want, to, I, want to, I, want, I want to leave it there because I think the thing that both groups would agree on is this. Both groups would agree on that Christian or non, we have a deep God-given longing. We all have a God-given longing for goodness. Hence, the political tensions, whether you're a conservative or liberal. At the end of the day, they would look at themselves and honestly say they're after good. And hence, they believe the other party is after something that is not good. And hence, they fight for something that they believe in, which is to be good. And this, this longing for goodness is a God-given desire. It's nothing that atheism could ever explain. And it's important for us to know this because for the, for the Christian, there's, there is a reality of this, of this struggle, that we have a spirit within us that fights to sin. But also for the unbeliever, right? Romans 2 is very clear that God has given all of us a conscience. And so though no one told you it was wrong, you knew it was wrong because the moral code is written on our hearts. And so is that the struggle? Who is this uh, depicting, before we go into it, let's just all agree that we all have a, have a God-given, not 
It's not natural. It's a God-given desire for goodness. And it's so important to know this because at our worst, we will use this even against God. You see, our God-given longing, our longing for goodness, is one of the great obstacles for Christianity. Our longing for goodness is one of the obstacles that you will go through, if you have not already, to this faith. What do I mean? You see, the most common question against Christianity is, if God is loving, how can he allow suffering in the world? If God is loving, how does he allow all this evil to exist? Why do we have an issue with evil? Because we have a deep, God-given longing for good, so much so that we'll even judge God against it. God, if you're not this good, if you're you're not the kind of good that I define, then God, you must not be good, and therefore you must not exist. You see how our longing is so strong that we'll even use it to judge God with? Uh, Many, many people, even the uh, most well-known agnostics today, are those who were at one point Christian but left the faith because they couldn't get over this hurdle. A.N. Wilson is one of them. He, in the 70s, he went to Oxford, a well-studied man, uh, was passionate about the Lord, uh, went, to, went to one year in seminary, after a year in seminary, tried to really wonder if what he believes is true. After a year in seminary, he left the seminary, he left the faith. He wrote a book called Against Religion, uh, Why We Should Try to Live Without It. Uh, he became well-known as an atheist. He was a, a well-known uh, author. And so, in the, in, uh, of the likes of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, two uh, very well-known uh, atheists, uh, ended up getting to know him. And the late uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, had dinner with him at one point, and, and A.N. Wilson writes about this. And Hitchens asks him, Wilson, you sure? So absolutely no God? Are you sure? And Wilson uh, Wilson responds, nope, no God for me, not in my future. Why did he leave the faith? This is what he writes. It was nonsense, together with the idea of a personal God or a loving God in a suffering universe. It was nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. He couldn't handle the idea of how can God be personal loving? That just sounds too good to be true. But the deeper aspect was, how can a loving God exist with a world that suffers? And because of that, he left the faith. What I want you to know is that that longing for goodness that you have is a longing that God has given you. But if you were to, let's say, take that step of faith and leave the faith, and you think, okay, maybe atheism has the answers, Let me tell you the next point is our longing for goodness is one of the greatest obstacles for atheism. I would say it's even harder to reconcile your atheistic views to a world of suffering. You see, A.N. Wilson did come back to the faith years later after much debate, after much discussion. But this is uh, one of the reasons that he actually ended up not being an atheist, because he couldn't reconcile the suffering of this world and the, the materialistic explanations. And so he writes this, purely materialistic explanations for our, for our mysterious 
human existence simply won't do on an intellectual level, right? He couldn't uh, take into account the idea of love. The atheism cannot explain love. All they can say is it can monitor your body and, and recognize that different chemicals are working. But they can explain why we pursue love and why it's so meaningful, right? Atheists cannot explain the beauty in art, specifically music. He couldn't, he couldn't explain music and how we have music in, exist, in existence today if, there is, if this world is simply a combination of materials coming together. But really, he realized at the end of it all, if you believe in this atheistic worldview, that there is really no good and no evil. That no one could ever say to one another that that is wrong. Because you're entitled to your own opinion. I mean, this is so well known in the atheistic world. Uh, Duke professor, uh, Duke uh, philosophy professor Alex Rosenberg uh, writes this. He wrote a book called The Atheist Guide to Reality. And this is what he says. He asks he asked a bunch of questions. Is there a God? No. What's the nature of reality? What physics says it is. What's the purpose of the universe? There is none. What's the meaning of life? Ditto. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Does prayer work? Of course not. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there a free will? Is there a free will? Not a chance. What happens when I die? Everything pretty much goes on as before except us. What's the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. Is abortion, uh, euthanasia, uh, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything, else, uh, or anything else you don't like, forbidden, permissible, or sometimes obligatory? Anything goes. I mean, when you read the reviews of this book, there are atheists that hate it because they hate his conclusion. But when you read the reviews, so many say he speaks the truth. That is a reality that we live in. And so for us, wherever we fall on the spectrum, a believer or not, we can all say that is a horrible existence. It's a horrible way to see the world. So you see, this longing for goodness that we have, it is an obstacle for Christians that I would agree with. It's a huge obstacle for the unbeliever. But also, I want you to know this. Our longing for goodness is one of the greatest apologetics to Christianity. That suffering and evil and your desire for good is one of the uh, big, big reasons you should be serious about your faith. And they should become a Christian if you are not. What do I mean? Uh, Peter Kreeft, once per, uh, one author, says it this way. Besides, the evidence of evil and suffering can go both ways. It can go both ways, the idea of suffering. It can be used in favor of God. If Templeton is right, in responding to these events with outrage that, uh, the, that, that presupposes their reality is a difference between good and evil, the fact that he's using the standard of good to judge evil, the fact that he is saying quite rightly that this, is, this, that this horrible suffering isn't what it ought to be, means that he has a notion of what it ought to be. That this notion corresponds to something real. 
and that there is therefore a reality called the supreme good. Well, there's a, that's another name for it, God. The whole idea of for us, when we say, God, that can't be, what we're saying is there is such a thing as good and evil. Why? Why do we all agree, Christian or non, that there is a good and there is an evil? Because God created us to be like that. And so we can't help but to long for it. And so what Christians have done throughout history, have they been the ones, because they understand that we're made in the image of God. They're the ones that have created hospitals. They're the ones that have pursued science because they, really, they recognize that God created a reasonable world. In all these ways, we recognize that our longing for goodness is at the end of the day most clearly understood in the Christian faith. We all long for goodness, but the reality is, though we long for it, is a deep struggle that you and I will have. And the Bible calls that sin. Going to Romans, the struggle for goodness, that as we long for goodness, that as, a, as we recognize this, this deep struggle that we have, now I want you to see in these verses, look with me, in verse 8, right? It says, sin seizing an opportunity. Notice how how intense this battle is. Verse 9, sin came alive and I died, right? So, uh, verse 11, sin seizing an, an, an opportunity deceived me and killed me. It talks about the effects of sin, right? It killed me. Verse 13, sin produced death. Look at verse 17 and 20, sin living in me. You see, this idea of good and evil, the way that the Bible portrays it, talks about it as this kind of power. It's not simply these choices that you make that are arbitrary. When we say the heart wants what it wants, what we're saying is though we want to do this, we end up doing that because though in our minds we know that this is right, our hearts long for this, there's something within us that, that, that draws us to that darkness. When you think about that, it explains a whole lot better what the world is like. Because for all of us, if it was a matter of choosing a button, of fixing the world or hurting the world, I believe more people would choose to push that button to fix the world. But though we want to press that button, we can't help but to be drawn by our action to make this world in some way, shape, or form worse. Whether it's by our greed, our temperament, by our idolatry. And so I asked before, is this describing a Christian or a non-Christian, a believer or a non-believer? And I would say to you, yes. It explains both. Because I want you to see uh, verses 17 to 13. And notice how 17 to 13 is all in the past tense, right? Verse 9, I was alive, I died. Sin deceived me, killed me. It was sin. But then in verse 14, the tense changes from the past to the present. Right? In the present, it's I do this, I don't do this. It's this very, uh, it's a, it's a very present battle. What we see here is Paul talking about his battle for goodness before he was a Christian and after he was a Christian. 
It's this battle for, for goodness. You see, both the Christian and the non-Christian struggle. They have this deep internal conflict. In Romans 2, it would talk about for the unbeliever, it's a conflict of our conscience. And so God has written the moral code in our heart. So Christian or not, we know what's good. We want to do good, but we do evil. But for, from verses 14 on, as the Spirit resides in us, the battle is now different. The difference is that he understood what it was. That, one, that, one, that there, there is a battle that happens before you come to faith and a battle that comes after you come to faith. Tim Keller puts it this way, there's a battle that we cannot win and a battle that we uh, cannot lose. You see, in our battle against evil on our own, before Christ, it's a battle we cannot win. As much as you try to do good, you cannot win that battle. You see, but with Christ, verses 14 on, the battle still exists. But now the battle is a battle that we cannot lose. It's important to know this. Because post-becoming Christian, you start to think that you shouldn't have all these other conflicting battles. You question your faith. You question your salvation. What we see here in both instances, an intense, a very real battle. But before, it's a battle you cannot win. You see, for Paul, he knew the Ten Commandments growing up his whole life. He was, he was brought up in a Jewish home. But what it says in verse 9 is, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. Do you see that? He knew it the whole time, but what happened? Something happened in his heart where he understood the law for what it is. And once he saw the law for what it is, the way that he really, the way that he should live, that's when sin came alive and I died. I mean, before he would say that spiritually he was dead before, when it was dead, it was deader now because he recognizes all the struggle. The Ten Commandments became a window into his heart. And then in verse 13, I want you to see this. Did that which is good, the law, then become death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through, the, through what is good. In order that, listen to these words, sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You see, this is the difference. Before Christ, we all recognize some sort of morality. After Christ, we recognize not just good and bad, but good and evil, right? A sin against God. You start to see everything differently. You see, this is so many of us, is it not? We think we're okay, and we struggle a little bit with sin. sin. But the reality is, is when you look inside your heart, you recognize how dark and how black it really is. And then... When you start to realize the nature and the power of the sin, it's almost like you have to throw your hands up in despair. Because in verse 7, saying, is, this, is the law sin? By no means. Yet if, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
For I would not have known what is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But then listen to these words. It almost personifies sin, does it not? But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. It's like saying to a kid, there is these crackers, but don't eat it. What happens to that kid? Oh, for some reason, those crackers look real good. What it's saying here is, yes, we have an idea, generally, because of our conscience, an idea of what's good and bad. But when God's law comes and shows us this is how you ought to live, the sin within us comes alive. It's almost like you can feel it breathing. You can see the eyes open within your own hearts of sin and saying, no. What it's saying is, is specifically with the whole idea of coveting. It's a whole idea. Yes, before it was good and bad. But at the end of the day, I was comfortable because I was my own God. And what God is saying now is with the law, you recognize the great evil is that you want to be your own God as opposed to having God be your own God. The law did something. It opened his eyes to truly what was evil. You see, we can do this. We can do this when we read Scripture. The more you learn of Scripture, you delight in it, and therefore you hate not just the big sins, but the small sins. But also, the, the non-believer can do this. Not with the law. But it is a matter of looking out into the world and recognizing how evil it is. And Jordan Peterson, a very well-known clinical psychologist, uh, not a Christian as well, says this about the reality of good and evil. He believes there are, there are powers to, to good and evil. And an unbeliever says this, if you, if, if you confronted the shadow, the dark side of your heart, you'll see that it reaches down to hell. I learned that good and evil were real, not because I learned what good means. No, that's actually pretty hard, which is what Paul is saying. He didn't know what really good was until he learned the law, and then he saw the sin in his heart. For Peterson, he is saying he saw the darkness, and he recognized, oh, that's evil. I learned that good and evil were real, not because I learned what good means. No, that's actually pretty hard. It's because I learned what evil was. Evil as you... As you look around, evil, you just need to look around, just read history. That's the world that we live in. We're deeply conflicted. And so the atheist tries to ration out reason, morality, trying to tell you there is no good and bad, good or bad. But what, we, what do we say? What do we want? We can't help when we see evil to say that is wrong, we want better. That's a struggle for goodness apart from God. Do you see that? All we can say, apart from God, is saying that is evil. We don't know how to live rightly. For the believer, it's a totally different story. You see, there is still a struggle, but now there is a power, a power of goodness. You see, before it's a battle you cannot win, now it's a battle you cannot lose. Because the power is still there. The battle within you still exists. Look with me in verse 17, right? He talks about himself, not in terms of two selves, but he talks about himself as now one person 
but this one person has something else that exists. So now it is no longer I who do it, verse 17, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Verse 20, now if I do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He talks about this idea of, you know, I do this and I don't do this, but he takes time to clarify. Whereas before, he was simply saying, I did this and I did this. There's two conflicting selves before. But what happens when you meet Christ? The sinful part of you dies. And what exists is a spirit that lives in you. That spirit that lives in you is the new you, the real you. But within you, there is a sin that dwells. And so there is still a battle, but there's only now one real you. And so in verse 22, it says, For I delight in the law of God. What did it say? In my inner being. That's you. Christian. That's you. If you have put your faith in Christ, no longer are there two selves competing. There is now one true you. And you battle the sin within you. And the good news is that you know who wins. That you are a new you and God has brought about this new you. And so that's why in verse 24, he says, What a wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why does he say this? Before he was in despair, what can be done? He says, This is what God has done. He has brought about a power within me to do good. Before, it was two competing selves. Today, there's a new you that longs to do good, but within you, there is a battle. But that, but that sin, it's dead. It's like a chicken with its head cut off. They say that when you cut off a chicken, the, the head of a chicken, it continues to run around for a little bit just because of the blood that's still in there. It continues to walk around and still, still does it. Is that chicken dead? It's dead. Is it causing ruckus and chaos? Absolutely. Is the sin within you dead? Absolutely. Is it causing some chaos within your life? Yes, it is. But the good news is you win. Christ within you wins. And so let me read this as we finish. You, Romans 8, You, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, to the Spirit who dwells in you. This is your story of how now you will contribute and do good throughout your own life. Though you will struggle as you endeavor to do good, the Spirit within you groans and wants to do good. 
For some of you, you have some addictions. You have some sexual addictions that you struggled with before becoming Christian. Maybe at times it comes back after you become, you became a Christian. You see, that battle is different today than it was before. Today, that sin lies dead. And in you, the battle is different, where Christ fights on your behalf. For others of you, it's not a sexual addiction. It's an eating disorder that you struggle with, that no one may know of. And you may feel like, how can I have fallen into this again? The reality is, is before Christ, it was a losing battle. With Christ, the victory is yours, and you have the ability to fight because Christ resides within you. You see this power within you. When you look at your life day to day, you may not be able to see that power. But I promise you, 10 years in, 20 years in, you will see that the trajectory of your life is completely different. And this is why A.N. Wilson became back to faith. Yes, all those other things that he saw of how atheists a rationalize away evil. He couldn't, he didn't feel like that was intellectually reasonable. And so he says this, as he uh, wrote a book on the Wagner family, this, he says this is why he ultimately came back to the Christian faith. I haven't mentioned morality, but the one thing that finally put the tin hat on any aspirations to be an unbeliever was writing a book about the Wagner family and Nazi Germany and realizing how utterly incoherent were Hitler's neo-Darwinian ravings, and how potent was the opposition, much of it from Christians, paid for not with clear intellectual victory, but with blood. He saw during the World War, Christians, not the famous ones, not the ones that books are written about, as he wrote a book on the Wagner family and how all these everyday Christians gave up their life, chose to do what was good, he couldn't deny how attractive that was, that the longing for goodness inside his own heart said, yes, that's the way how life should be lived. And that is what brought him back to faith. For us, that is our longing. It's this cosmic battle between good and evil. When you become Christian, what you realize is that you were created for the good life, to do good. What you also recognize is God is the supreme good. That all the goodness that your heart and soul longs for is found in Him. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, Join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening, and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.